the Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. So this morning we are going to continue and conclude our study on what the Bible says about giving. But but before we jump in, I want to remind you of some data that we shared last week in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I shared with you guys that it's estimated that one out of every six verses deals somehow with money. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every six verses is estimated somehow deals with money. The Bible contains roughly 500 verses that speak about prayer and that speak about faith, but more than 2,000 verses that speak about money. Some say that's more like 2,350 verses specifically that speak about money, depending on the translation. To add to that, approximately 40% of Jesus' parables somehow dealt with money. Jesus taught on the topic of money more than he taught on the topic and subject of heaven and hell combined. So I said that last week to say that the Bible has a lot to say about money. So today I want to continue speaking with you about money and about giving, and let's recap real quick some of last week's points. Last week I said that I believe that your giving will always expose you, and that it will reveal several things about you. Your level of faith, your level of submission to God, your level of commitment, your love, Obedience versus disobedience, your level of understanding or, or lack thereof, and how you make decisions and choices in your life. We began last week with 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, became a living being, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam enjoyed receiving. The last Adam enjoyed giving. The, The first Adam enjoys being alive. The last Adam enjoys giving life. The last Adam being the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. We highlighted another truth found in John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He gave. To give is to take from oneself and to extend to another. He gave. What did he give? His only. All that he had sacrificially God gave to us. His begotten son. Which was what? His best. His best gift for us. So God took from himself a sacrificial gift. His best gift. And he gave him. Jesus Christ. To the world. Let me also remind you of the statistics that the Gallup Poll Organization reported. According to the Gallup Poll Organization, between 2005 and 2017, giving has decreased in churches by 
11%. But giving has been holding strong and steady among other secular charities. In the average church, 17% of people say they tithe. Only 3% actually do. And last week I said that what's interesting about this 3% number is that I know and you know that there are a lot more than 3% of believers that actually believe that the tithe is commanded. We know that. More than 3% of believers believe that for us the tithe is commanded. 40% of people, according to Gallup, will give nothing in a year. 40%. I said last week what's interesting about that number is that as a believer, as a Christian, we believe and we know that 100% of people, giving is required of 100% of people as a Christian. We, we know that, we believe that. There's, there's no Christian out there that would say um, the Bible doesn't teach us to give. And I know that we can talk about giving, you know, of, of time and giving of other things, but today we're specifically speaking about money, so I'm not going to get off of the point. Yes, you can give many other things, but we're talking about money as Jesus and as the Bible directly speaks about money. Okay? So, um, so 40% of people will give nothing in a year. And like I said, what's interesting about that is that 100% of believers believe that God commands that. So then, where's the disconnect? For some, it just doesn't matter. And the reason why it doesn't matter is because they are Lord of their finances. They, they are the God of their finances. We spoke about uh, something that Martin Luther said, right? There are three conversions that are necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the Mind and the conversion of the purse. According to Gallup, 91% will say they make more money now than they ever have in their life. So it's not like they're struggling, which wouldn't be an excuse. But 91% say they make more money now than they ever have in their life. And 71% of pastors believe that church members have changed from stewards into consumers. Again, very interesting statistics. What you believe will always be manifested over what you say. I I proved that point to you last week with the scriptures. We also looked at the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 17 through 28. And I also proved to you by the scriptures that there is definitely a connection between money and spirituality. We spoke about withholding money last week and that a, a threat to your obedience to God's word in the area of giving is oftentimes your circumstances. We read Ecclesiastes 11. I'm going to read it again. Ecclesiastes 11, 4 through 6 says, He who observes the wind will not sow. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed and in the evening do not withhold your hand. 
For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So we see here a, a continual habit and, and, and pattern of giving. In the morning. In the night. But verse 4, he who observes the wind will not sow. The wind represents your circumstances. If you're observing the wind, you're looking for that, that, that perfect, perfect time to sow your seed. And if you observe that, if you sow your seed based on your circumstances, then you will not sow. We touched on the topic of tithe last week and what the Bible says about the tithe. And let me make this clear again. Last week I was speaking to you about the principle of tithe, not the law of tithe. The, the principle of tithe, not the law of it. Because like I said, I do not see where this Old Testament practice is, is specifically clearly commanded in the New Testament. However, I believe that it's a principle when understood correctly within the New Testament context is a good principle. A couple of things that we said last week about the tithe. We said that if you, if you look at the tithe and you actually study the tithe, you'll discover that actually there were multiple tithes. Right? There, there, were, there were more than one tithe in the Bible. There were um, uh, two or three annual tithes in the New Testament. One for the Levites, one for those that used the, the temple and the feasts, and one for the poor of the land. So there were like two or three. And when people break it down, they say actually the Old Testament givers were probably given around 25 to 30%. When you, when you really study it. We're not diving into tithe. That's not the teaching today. But when you study it out, you would see that there were different tithes that were commanded. But the tithe itself represents a tenth. Tithe means a, a tenth. So the, the, greatest, the greatest revelation when you're thinking about percentages, when it comes to, to percentages, the greatest revelation for you is that God owns 100% of everything. God owns 100% of everything, everywhere, including 100% of what's in your hand. Because it's easy to say, yeah, you know, God, he owns 100% of what's in your hand. We spoke about the, the New Testament model of giving last week, which is clearly commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I'm going to read that again as well, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the, the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. This is the, the, the clear New Testament command. All right? the, the Apostle Paul, right? known as the Apostle to the Gentiles, the Bible tells us. right. This is where we receive our doctrine for the church, uh, very specifically. So 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. 
On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. This does not necessarily mean that you are giving weekly, but it does mean that weekly you are laying something aside. I think there were 52 weeks in a year back then, and I think there are still 52 weeks in a year today. The, the main point is for you to really consider and to be intentional about your giving. That's the main point. For, for us in our context, it, it may be every two weeks when we get paid. But the, but the point is that there should be a continual habit of intentionally thinking about and considering and making room for giving to the work of the Lord. That, that's, the, that's the main point. This isn't like random, like, man, like, like when I feel like it. Man, I kind of have an urge to give. Let me give. This has nothing to do with your feelings. This is a, a habit for the believer and for the Christian. Amen. Amen. We spoke about God loving a, a cheerful giver in the New Testament. In the, in the Old Testament, it was out of compulsion, right? And it was very specific what they had to give. In the New Testament, though, it's out of love and it's out of joy. Knowing what God has done for us. And, and our giving is a beautiful response to his grace. It's a beautiful response to the grace that's been bestowed upon us. Back to John three sixteen, for he gave his only son for us. Second Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 speaks about the, the cheerful giver, and we read that. So just remember this. It, it, is all, it is all his. It's all his. It is all his. And you will never be a cheerful giver until you understand that fact, that it is all his. It all belongs to him. If you don't understand that and you feel like, like God is somehow taking from you what doesn't belong to him, then you can't be cheerful in that. But when you understand, man, man like everything I have belongs to God, it is, a, it is an honor and a privilege that we get to keep some and that we get to honor him with our giving. That's an honor. So remember that. It's all his. I really want to press that point. Deuteronomy 8 says, right, that it's God who gives us the, the power to get wealth. Right? He gives us that power. You go to work, and you think that you earn money because of your strength and because you're healthy, because you're young, whatever. But he's the one that gives us power, the power to get wealth. And we said last week, you know, that God's not against wealth either. There were many wealthy people in the Bible. God's not against wealth. He's not against you enjoying nice things. But he wants you to honor him. Is that reasonable? Amen. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So let's pick up here. So, so I want to, you know, uh, show you um, a little bit more this morning how, how the Old Testament giving differs from the New Testament. Um, and remember, this is just a casual conversation I'm having with you this morning. I'm finishing the casual conversation that we began last week. So it's just very, very casual here. 
Uh, someone reminded me last week after my message that it was a, a great message to hear uh, when the church is doing good financially. <laughs> um, and that hit me. So I want to echo that to you. Um, that, that, that faithful brother reminded me that it's, it's a great uh, message to hear when the church is in a good spot financially. And, um, and maybe, maybe you don't know that, and, you know, and maybe, maybe the enemy tried to even sow some lies last week, but um, understand that the message was not to somehow twist your arm uh, to give. Uh, this is God commands you to give. Um, we're not uh, begging you for money or desperate for money. All right, let, let me just make that clear. By God's grace, as a brand new church plant, we're doing well by his grace. And he saw us through a pandemic. Um, and, um, and I love the saints and, and um, I love you guys. And, and we're going to relaunch too. And, you know, but, 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 but God sustained us. You know what I mean? So I'm speaking to you about this because this is God's word for you. This is what God commands and requires of you. And I want to hold you all accountable in your giving. And I want you all to reevaluate your giving. Right? So that's why we're speaking about that. Um, so yeah, well, I'm not throwing out some kind of lifeline you know, for you guys to, to respond to. Um, at the same time, you know, I want you guys to, to understand you know, that, our, that our church is not self-sustaining. Right? So, so I don't want to mislead you in any way. Right? Our church is not self-sustaining. We have outside support right? from the, from the uh, funds that were raised before we started. And um, if, that, if that support was to go away, our church would not be in a position where we're able to meet all of our needs by ourselves. So, so we do have financial support from outside, uh, but that's healthy. Most or many church plants that begin, they have outside support, right? So that's, that's good, that's healthy. And actually, they say that um, uh, the goal is in five years for a brand new church plant to be self-sustaining. I think we can get there a lot sooner than that. Uh, but that's the goal, you know, five years for a new church plant to be self-sustaining um, by itself. So we do have outside support. As you know as well, some of the outside support has gone away in the past three weeks, right, um, since the end of June, right? So um, here's the thing, you know, there, there are people who, who do not eat of this fruit that support this, this root, right? Like, they're not a part of this. They don't, they're not receiving here, but they're giving here. So if folks outside can be faithful in their giving, you get the point, right? We need to be. Us who are partaking of, of this, this fruit, in this place, we need to be supporting the root. Is that reasonable? Amen. Amen. So, um, yeah, so, so God willing, we will be, you know, um, before, before five years, uh, way before five years, um, I believe, but we will be um, self-sustaining. And that comes from uh, people within 
doing their part, the part that God has called them to do as faithful believers. So let's pick up with the last passage that we read last week, which was in Malachi chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 11. Malachi 1, 6 through 11. I read this passage at the end of last week, and I, and I said to you guys to remember these words, God's words, as you discern to give, right? The, the New Testament command is that we are to, we give proportionally, right? So, uh, so I'm not going to throw out a number for you and say, hey, you need to, no. In the New Testament, um, you discern, and you decide how you give. So Malachi 1, 6 through 11, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in in what way have we despised your name? Verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? So you, you offer defiled food and then you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice... Is it not a strong word? It's a very strong word. Is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, that word again, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a, somebody say pure, pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Selah. Don't think I have to say much there. I think the passage itself says it all. I mentioned uh, Cain and Abel's offering. Cain's offering to the Lord, he offered it to, was rejected. Abel's offering was received. 
And Cain was mad and Cain was angry about that. But God rejects offerings. And God receives offerings. And whether he rejects it or receives it, it's not based on him. It's based on you. Another source reported that I didn't share with you last week, another source reported that, um, that only 5% of the U.S. tithes, which is a little higher than the other source, it's a 5% tithe with, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income. Things to remember about sacrificial giving, right? If you are giving sacrificially, then you feel it. Just some things to remember. If you are giving sacrificially, sacrifices are felt. Cain kind of gave the leftovers. David said, I will, I will never give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. David said, he said, I, I will never give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Sacrifices are, are felt. So if you're giving sacrificially, then you're, you're sometimes, you know, you're giving something that you, that you don't necessarily want to give, and you wouldn't really give if it were not for your love for the Lord and for the church. And for me, it's amazing how we, how we, give, to, we give to God, right? And then God, who loves the church, you know, gives to the church. And he allows the, the church to partake of the gifts that, that are offered to him. And, the, and then the church distributes accordingly, according to the need. I, it's just a beautiful picture that I have in my head that we're, we're giving to him, but the church receives of it. And um, I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful, beautiful picture. Your gift goes through God and to the church. So, so in the New Testament, right, you have to purpose in your heart and figure out what is reasonable for you to give. So I personally believe, right, this is my opinion, okay, Marlon Yearwood's opinion, okay, that if 10% was, was reasonable in the Old Testament across the board, then it is reasonable for me to at least start there. And I believe that if I start there, I cannot go wrong. That's, that's what I believe. And if I'm honest, I personally, again, I do not believe that a person can give one, two, three, four percent of their income and call it sacrificial. Come and let us reason together. I, 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 I don't believe that's possible. I, I just don't believe that, that a person can do that and say, this is sacrificial. 
I've, I've never seen the, the Old Testament standards lower in the New Testament. I, I love this book. I read through it often. I mean, like, I read it every day, but I read through cover to cover often. <laughs> okay. um, but I, but I, love, I love this, this book. And I, and I enjoy reading it. And I've just, I've just never seen the, the Old Testament standards anywhere lower in the New Testament. In fact, I see the opposite, right? In the Old Testament, you had to, you had to commit the act of adultery in order for you to be an adulterer. In the Old Testament, you had to commit the act of murder in order for you to be a murderer. But in the New Testament, Jesus says that if you hate your brother, in the New Testament, you can commit murder from afar. You don't have to commit the act. Jesus said, if you hate your brother, you have committed murder. Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you have committed adultery. That's a, that's a higher standard. And there are more that we can speak about. So I always see a higher standard in the New Testament than the Old Testament. And rightfully so. In, in the Old Testament, it was what? It was the, the blood of bulls and, and goats that, that covered our sin. In the New Testament, it is the blood of the sacrificial lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that completely wipes away our sins for all eternity. There's a difference. There's a difference. So obviously, we're, we're no longer under the Old Testament law. However, the Old Testament law pointed to Christ and was a great teacher. Remember that. It, it was not bad. The law was not bad. It was good. Can you guys say that? Can you guys say the law was good? Let me help you. Uh, Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. There are, there are some believers that, that, that borderline, borderline almost think that the law borderline is almost sinful the law is good the law is good Romans 7.12 therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good 1 Timothy 1.8 for we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. The law is good. And Jesus Christ did not abolish the law. He fulfilled it. Amen. Amen, church. Big difference. He fulfilled the law. So, so things that were, that were bad in the Old Testament, right? Things that were bad in the Old Testament. Do they now somehow become good in the New Testament? If if there were sins in the in the Old Testament like like murder and like 
adultery, and so on and so on. Can we now in the New Testament say these things are okay? If it was bad in the Old Testament, it's still bad in the New Testament. And vice versa. If it was good, there are, there are some good principles that can still come from the Old Testament. Amen. Have you guys ever heard, um, heard believers arguing about Sabbath? Huh? I have. And it's, it's the funniest thing in the world. It's like, no, nah, brother, I don't, I don't have to rest because this is new covenant. That stuff was old covenant. And it's like, okay, we, we understand the old covenant and the new covenant. But again, let's reason together. Just rest. Why are we arguing about, about rest? Why are people debating about, like, just rest? It's okay. And I would, I would also argue that, anyway, that Sabbath was um, established before the law. It was established at creation um, with God as a principle for us to continue in. Sabbath, so regardless of your opinion on it, rest. You need it. The Bible says God rested. And he didn't have to, but he rested. <laughs> rest. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 7 real quick. Hebrews chapter 7. And here in, in Hebrews 7, we're going to find a, a principle established that naturally flowed from Abraham's heart because of his love for God. Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to find a principle that flowed naturally from the heart of Abraham. This principle was not taught and it was not commanded. It was just a natural response. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Are you guys following this morning? Amen. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest, Continually. Now, consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. 
And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, pay tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. There's a lot here. Do you guys understand? <laughs> cool, cool. So, um, so Abraham uh, established a biblical principle, first of all, um, before Levi, right? Levi, who, who was the, the leader of the tribe of the Levites, and they're the ones that, that received the, the offerings and the tithes of the people. Abraham established a biblical principle before Levi was ever born, before the law was ever established. Abraham was before Moses, right? So Abraham established a principle before the law was ever established. And this principle came from the heart of Abraham. Nobody taught Abraham. Nobody told Abraham uh, about a tenth. Abraham lived in the Old Testament. Nobody said, hey, it is required of you to give a tenth. This came from the heart of Abraham because Abraham met someone who was very special. For this Melchizedek, let's look at him again, king of Salem, king of Salem, think of that, highlight that, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed him. Abraham gives a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. So, and then, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So first of all, who, who's the king of peace? King of peace, priest of the most high God. Who's the king of righteousness? Listen, verse three, without father without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually or forever. That can be translated. So Melchizedek, if you don't know, is a, is a type of Jesus. He's called the king of peace. He's called the king of righteousness. The Bible says he has no beginning and no end, no mother, no father. There's no man on earth like that, apart from our Savior. So Melchizedek was a type of Jesus, represented Jesus, the Son of God. And Abraham met him, and in this encounter with him, what flowed from the heart of Abraham naturally 
when he was in the presence of the Son of God, is he said, man, I need to give a tenth of all that I have. And he did that joyfully. And he gave and he was blessed by him. So this king of Melchizedek is a, is a mystery figure. But when we look at how the Bible describes him, we see that it cannot be a man, a regular man. So, king of Melchizedek represents Christ. So Abraham established this principle that flowed from his heart because of his love for being in the presence of the Son of God. Genesis 14, 18 through 20 tells us that Melchizedek, a type of Jesus or Jesus himself, that when he met with, with Abraham, he brings out bread and wine before Abraham. Again, who, who does that? Right? The, the bread and the wine. So the scriptures point us toward Jesus when it speaks of Melchizedek. Can you see that? Good. Abraham was a special guy. Like, he, he really saw a lot. He saw a lot before, before anyone else saw it. Uh, and the Bible tells us in, in Galatians, right, that he is, you know, our father of the faith. Abraham is our father in the faith. That is that when we become children of God, we're also known as children of Abraham. So you can, you can tell a, a lot about a person's spirituality by the way that individual interacts with money and their possessions and what they have. You can tell a lot. Generosity is, is good. Okay, generosity is good. Generosity is good because God says that it's good and God commands it. Generosity pleases God and generosity also turns, turns people into, into partners. When you're generous, it turns people into, into partners. Let me show you some scriptures where giving is rewarded. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, and I'm not going to spend time on these, but Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Proverbs 11 and verse 25, the generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. You hear me quote that a lot. Proverbs 22 and verse 9, he who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Proverbs 3 and verse 9, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Let's read this. I mentioned her briefly last week, but we're going to read the scriptural account. Luke 21, 1 through 4. 
And he, being Jesus, looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So we see Jesus again observing. Probably made the people uncomfortable. But he's there looking at what people are giving. He's, he's observing. They're giving. Because he's, he's giving. They're giving unto him. So he's, he's observing their giving. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. So there were folks that gave a lot more than she gave. And, and Jesus was not looking at the amount given. The one who probably gave the least gave the most. So Jesus was not looking at the amount here. He didn't commend the rich folks and say, man, thank you for giving that, 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 that great gift that you gave. But he looked at the, at the sacrificial gift. And he spoke about the, the widow with two mates. And he honored her by speaking of her. He exhorted her by, by speaking of her and what she did. And it is recorded for us to know. Finally, Acts chapter 4. We're going to read Acts 4. Start in verse 32, and we'll end in Acts 5, verse 11. But we'll read 32 through 37 first. I think you guys have, have seen all throughout the Scriptures... Um, this is in no way a, a, an exhaustive study, um, but I've given you a lot. Acts four thirty-two through thirty-seven. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Let me pause first. So we see um, Acts chapter one. The Holy Spirit comes and. Acts chapter 2, we see uh, Peter preaching and 3,000 people get saved and the church uh, is birthed. The, the church is, is born in Acts chapter 2. And then they begin to meet and they, and they gather together um, and they are sacrificial and they're, and they're just excited to be in community with one another um, and, their, and their giving. We see this. 
And then Acts, Acts chapter 4, now the multitude, so this is still, we're very early on, right? Like, like the church has been born. Um, this is a new thing. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. Um, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. So they had a revelation um, that I trying to impart to you today that it all belongs to him. They had that revelation and that understanding. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one, of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each, to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who also was called Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his lust. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. The story of Ananias and, and Sapphira, right, was, was this. You know, first of all, it was them lying to the Holy Spirit, right? Um, God's not going to strike you down because you didn't give enough. Right? But it was, the, it was the lying to the Holy Spirit. Okay? 
they, let's say they were from Woodbridge, right? The average house price here is like 410, 415,000. Um, so they, they, they sold a house. And in, in this season, people are getting a lot more for their home. So um, they sold their house for 500,000, right? 500K, they sold their home. And, uh, and everyone else is, was giving like everything. And, and they, like, they didn't have to give everything, right? But they sold their home for 500000 um, and then, you know, they, they, they brought 300000 um, But they wanted to, to act like they brought the entire amount, right? Like, like, we're giving everything. But they kept back two hundred k for themselves. And Peter's like, hey, like, like, it was yours. Like, you could have done what you wanted with it. But why are you trying to lie? And he didn't even say to us, but to the Holy Spirit. You're trying, to, you're trying to deceive the Spirit of God in trying to come across like you're giving 100% when you know you're giving 60%. Why, why are you doing this? You see, he could have just given 300K and said, hey, like, here's my 300K. But, but he wanted to, to be perceived like he was on a, a different level than he was actually on. He wanted people to perceive him a certain way. They did. So they, they planned this. And it cost them both, both their lives. So they were, they were lying to, to the Spirit of God. But we see a, a sacrificial giving, right, in the early church. And that's, that's what I want to say to you guys, right? Um, for all of you. For everyone in this room, right? Um, allow the word to work. Reevaluate your giving. It's between you and it's between him. I'm not going to say you have to give this amount. No, it's between you and it's between him. But reevaluate. So as I conclude here, in the Old Testament, offering was specifically commanded. That sometimes makes it, makes it more difficult for it to be joyful, right? When things are specifically commanded, sometimes it can make it more difficult for things to be, to be joyful because you understand that this is a requirement. This is required of me. But in the New Testament, we're, we're called to a higher standard, and we are to, to freely and cheerfully give under grace and not under the law. And that, I believe, will, will usually produce greater givers. I believe. When you understand that a, a, a specific amount isn't required of you, but you can give under, under grace and, and in proportion to how God has blessed you and you have that freedom, I believe that produces greater givers for those who understand. That's why I wanted to break this message down for you today. In the New Testament, we're called again to a higher standard to give under grace and not under law because we're now given on the other side of the cross. 
right? These folks who were, who were giving in the Old Testament, they never knew and understood and received or partook of the things that we have, right? We, we know, we, we know the, the fullness of what he's done. We know it. We've experienced it. His, his spirit never lived in them. His spirit lives and dwells in us. We've, we've received the, the, the fullness of his sacrifice as much as we can on earth. We're partakers of that. So we in the New Testament, we've just seen something. We have something to, to respond to from a heart of grace and not from the law. Old Testament, New Testament, it's, it's law-givers versus grace-givers. It's have-to-givers versus want-to-givers. We're, we're giving now, not out of necessity. We're, we're giving now out of love. And I also believe that our giving is a test. You know, I believe that our giving is a test. That it's a, it's a spiritual heart thermometer that will continue to reveal to us how we're doing spiritually. And obviously, our giving is not the only spiritual detection device. There are others, but our giving, I believe, is one of those. Every time we, we, we give, it is a reminder and a test of where our treasure is. So I say to you, be, be free this morning and give in proportion to how the Lord has blessed you. Amen? Let's stand up, please. Bow your heads, please. Word of God was for everyone this morning, those present, those online. And for every single one of us, we should um, be intentional and reevaluate how we are giving. That's what this message was, was a call for us to do. The Bible has a lot to say about money and possessions. And the greatest revelation that I need you to know is that it all belongs to him, 100% of it. Everything belongs to him. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Father, we thank you. As you examine yourselves in this room this morning, Father, we thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. You gave sacrificially, you gave your best. That whosoever believes in Jesus Christ shall be saved. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will not be condemned as you deserve to be condemned, as we deserve to be condemned. But we shall be saved by His grace because of His sacrifice for us. So if you acknowledge that you are a sinner, if you acknowledge that you need a Savior, and you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only one, the only one qualified that can possibly die for your sin, that can cleanse you, that can wash you, if you understand that He came to this earth, lived a perfect life, never sinned, if you understand that the proof that He was who He said He was was in the resurrection when He rose from the dead on the third day because death had no power over Him and couldn't hold Him because He was without sin, not dying for Himself but dying for you. If you can believe that this morning, then you can be saved. He's given everything for you. And He's calling you this morning out of darkness into His marvelous light. Would you allow Him to redeem you as He desires this morning? We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.